hey, guess what? There's new Hans merch. Get a picture of our endemic Red Admiral butterfly on shirts, mugs, phone cases, and all sorts of things. Just go to historyaltered.com and click merch in the menu. Kia ora, g'day, and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 52, Foraging. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Neville. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we talked about the most important cultivated plants that Māori grew, kumara, taro, gourds and yams. We also talked a bit about the phases of Māori horticulture and finished off with a discussion on the naming of various flora and fauna. This time, we're going to venture beyond the garden path and talk about foods that were foraged from the bush rather than cultivated. Well, I say beyond the garden path. As you will find, it's not quite that straightforward. Māori foraged all sorts of different foodstuffs from the bush, things like wild ferns, vines, fungi, fruit, and seeds. Some of these we will talk about today, but the food we will be spending most of our time on will be Teridium esculentum, which I've definitely mispronounced, more commonly known as bracken fern. However, we aren't interested in the leafy part of the fern. What we want is the part of the root called the rhizome, The rhizome of a plant is basically a central hub of where lots of different roots and shoots come from as it sits underground. A common example of this is ginger you get in the supermarket. In saying that, I'm not really going to refer to the plant by any of those names. I'm going to use the other common name that you see in a lot of literature, fern root. Or, I'll use its tereo name, aruhe. Aruhe was extremely important to pre-European Māori. So much so that Joseph Banks wrote that it was, quote, the foundation of their meals, end quote, as well as, quote, to be to them what bread is to us, end quote. And that seems to be the consensus in other sources. The fern root was the most important foodstuff Māori had access to, potentially even more important than kumara. Which I realise is quite the bold statement to make, given how much I have talked Kumara up in previous episodes, but stick with me here. What we find is that cultivated foods like Kumara may not have made up the primary part of the Māori diet, even in areas that were prime spots for horticulture. This was actually initially brought to attention by our good mate Elston Best, though he didn't rule out that all-important regional variation, where cultivated food may have in fact been the primary source of sustenance. So, what were they doing with all that kumara? Well, it seems that they may have been seen as more of delicacies, and may have only been eaten sometimes throughout the year, such as when they had important guests visiting, or when there was a bumper harvest. But, thing is, Māori weren't just eating fern root because they could. There had to be a reason. That reason, most certainly, was not the taste. Apparently, it had a much worse flavour and texture than that of their regular cultivated plants, and it took a lot of preparation to get it ready for eating. Which I'm guessing means getting rid of that nasty-ass taste. The way they did that was by adding kōdu, that sweet, chewy substance made from cabbage tree taproot that we talked about in our first few episodes. 
No, fern root became a staple because it was much easier to obtain than cultivated foods, and this was for a few reasons. One was that kumara and the like had to be managed, maintained, and stored, all things that took time and energy to do. Fern root still required a large amount of effort to get, you had to dig it out of the ground after all, but it grew bloody everywhere. It really wasn't that hard to find, particularly given that the other reason it was favoured was that after a couple of years of cultivation, gardens had to be left fallow for a long time. And I mean a long time, anywhere between 14 to 25 years or longer. For those of you that don't know what fallow means, it's a horticultural term where you leave the field or the garden or the, the dirt, basically, to do nothing. You don't do anything with it so that it can build that nutrients back up. Because basically, the things that you've been growing in there have sucked all the nutrients out of the soil. So you want that nutrients to come back, so you just leave the field to do its own thing for a while. During this time, Aruhe would take over. Then, when it was time to go back to the garden to reuse it for cultivation, the new growth would be burnt off and the rhizomes dug up. Other plants would have grown during this period as well that would have been burnt off, and it's thought that this may have helped the fern root grow even better, as their roots could go quite deep and avoid being dug. On the face of it, this is pretty good. You get kumara when the nutrients in the soil is plentiful, and fern root when it isn't. However, Aruhe has wiry roots that would make a kind of mat in the soil as they grew. So the more Māori burnt off and let fern root grow in their gardens, the thicker this mat got, and as such, the harder it got to return to cultivation again. The result of this was that 19th century Māori, rather than dealing with the rampant Aruhe in their fields, just burnt off more bush for more farmland. So the more they relied on fern root, the harder it became to grow crops, which may have had a pretty significant impact on their horticultural system. By this time though, Europeans had turned up, so there was a lot of other stuff going on that meant this grand change never really happened. And before I get the racists too excited, no, I am not in any way suggesting that Europeans quote-unquote saved Māori from themselves, their culture, or that Europeans civilised Māori with their technology. Māori more than likely would have figured it out. People are smart. They had already crossed an ocean and figured out how to grow tropical crops in a place where they weren't really meant to grow. They could probably figure this one out too. Aruhe was mostly foraged for in the spring, when it was at its biggest, about half to a metre in length, and as thick as a finger, so quite long and thin basically. In saying that though, not the whole rhizome was used, the parts deeper in the ground were the bits more preferable for eating, but this could yield up to 45 centimetres of produce. In comparison, kumara was described as being finger shaped and often recorded as quite small, definitely not as large as what we see in the supermarket today. Comparing kumara to fern root, you do find that the latter gives a higher yield. However, you do need to consider things like the spacing of the plants, how many tubers you get per plant, how much land is needed to produce per X amount of tubers, and all of that kind of stuff. But in lieu of going through all that very boring analysis, just trust me, Aruhe is the winner in terms of yield here. 
When the fern root was dug out of the ground, it was sometimes dried in the wind for two weeks, being shielded from the sun and rain. After this, it could be safely placed in storage for years until it was needed. In fact, some people said it was better to eat a year after it had been dried. As you might expect, the reliance on aruhe wasn't always the case, and certain areas did favour other food sources, or they had others that filled the same niche that fern root occupied in certain regions. For example, in the South Island, large areas of fern root didn't really occur until the late 19th, early 20th century, and so relied on other food sources. The one exception to this was Tasman Bay near Nelson, which had pretty good growing conditions for aruhe and kumara. People in the Uruera forests also found that fern root wasn't that plentiful, and relied on other foraged plants, as it was a bit too cold there for most cultivated food. One of the interesting things about all this cool information about aruhe is how we got to know some of it, like which areas had lots of fern root consumption and others didn't. I'll posit that question to you first before I answer it. How would we know what people were eating hundreds of years ago? Remember, we have no written record that we can just go and analyse in a library. And yes, we do have the oral record of stories that have been passed down, but for the sake of argument, let's ignore that, otherwise this whole exercise just breaks. So, you can't look at their stomach contents, because we don't have a body or stomach to analyse. So, what other product of food consumption could we use instead? Have you got it? If you answered a big old pile of poop, congrats! In this case, it was fossilised poop, and this kind of analysis is used for figuring out the diet of not just people, but animals as well, sometimes even when it is a bit fresher. Another way we can find this out is by looking at the teeth, which would develop what's called a fern root plane, caused by how abrasive aruhe is. Specifically, this would be where the first molars on both jaws and even the adjacent teeth became worn out on various parts of the tooth, which may be as a result of how Māori chewed fern root specifically. Kind of like how you don't chew gum with your front incisors. Aruhe wasn't the only foodstuff that Māori were foraging. There were lots of other things in the bush that were worth eating as well, if you knew how to get them. The one we have talked about before is the cabbage tree, known to Māori generally as tea, with some sort of suffix to denote a specific species. Of the three species we will be focusing on, tīpara and tīpore were introduced from somewhere in the Pacific. Best, who spends quite a bit of time talking about this in his articles, theorises that tīpore came from the Kermadec Islands, and mentions that Māori said tīpara came on the waka Aotea, though others said it came on another waka, Nukutere. Either way, it was well known that these species weren't native to New Zealand, even if they didn't use that word in particular. Tīpore's scientific name is Cordyline fruticosa, or C. terminalis, depending on how old the literature you're reading is. On the other hand, tīpara, or tītāwhiti, or tīkōwhiti, depending on the region, wasn't formally described by Best's time, and from a quick Google search, that may still be the case. Tīpara and tīpore were the two main cabbage trees that Māori favoured for eating. 
Both of these were different to C. australis, T. kouka, the one we talked about way back in our early episodes. This one is endemic to New Zealand, so it isn't found anywhere else in the world. I'm going to refer to cabbage tree as just that, or as tea when I'm not really referring to any particular species, and mention specifics when needed, so hopefully you don't get too confused. Although most foraged food wasn't really cared for in any way, cabbage trees did have some small amount of management. They were planted quite purposefully by Māori near settlements as a food source, though after that they weren't really looked after in any way. You can actually still see evidence of this around the country, with trees that are currently standing resulting from those initial plantations. Though Best does say that he is unaware of any tea pada growing in the wild, so it's possible it was limited to areas that were a bit warmer due to its more usual tropical climate. Best actually tried to grow some that he found in an abandoned garden, having taken some clippings from it. He grew it until it was about a metre tall, which isn't very tall for a cabbage tree, but it was at this point that he decided to cut it and take it to someone who knew how to prepare it for eating. He said that it had a sweetish taste, but a quote, decidedly bitter aftertaste, end quote. This may have been because tea take about three years before they are ready to harvest, and I'm fairly sure he didn't wait that long. The part that Best was probably eating is the taproot, the central dominant root of the cabbage tree that all other roots come out of. The lower parts of the roots would be left in the ground to allow the tree to grow again, and in fact, the tree would often be planted over rocks, as well as damp soil, to stop the roots going too deep. Why this was, Best doesn't really elaborate, but maybe it was to make it easier to dig somehow? Either way, once the taproot was removed and its outer layer taken off, it would be soaked in water for a day before being put into a hangi for another day. Sometimes they would also be dried before removing the outer layer. After removing from the hangi, they would be pounded or chewed, washed, and then squeezed to get the nice sweet stuff to come out. This was the part that was often put on fern root to make it taste better. The other way Māori would eat it was by wrapping the taproot in leaves and placing it in a large communal hangi, about 2.5 metres in diameter, which all the local families would use. The problem was, of course, how do you tell which bundle belongs to who after everything has been buried and then dug up again? Well, the way they solved that was by tying the bundles together with unique knots making it easy to distinguish which family should be grabbing which bundle. After the bundles were cooked, they would be dried and stored until they were needed. When they were pulled out to eat, they were pounded and placed in a bowl or other vessel of water so that the meal and fibres could be separated by rubbing and squeezing. This process was roughly uniform across all tea species. This particular way of eating the taproot may sound somewhat familiar. Again, going back to one of those really early episodes we did when we talked about kodu, a sweet substance that was sometimes called Māori licorice. This was also made of the taproot of cabbage trees, and I believe this is what Best is describing here. However, he does say that this process was only in reference to C. australis, so who knows. 
For kodu, it was often eaten as a lolly on its own, either by chewing it or sucking on it before being spit out, and it's possible fern root may have been eaten in the same way on occasion. Early missionaries may have made beer from it too. Tea also had a bit of ceremony around its cooking as well, such as not using rewarewa, New Zealand honeysuckle, to heat the hangi. This is apparently because when the wood decayed, it became phosphorescent. It gave off light. This would look kinda similar to a glowworm, who were the children of a mostly negative god, probably the god of secrets or whispers, and it would indicate that the next crop would fail. Talking about some species more specifically, T. putter, C. terminalis, and C. pumilio, the dwarf or pygmy cabbage tree, didn't really grow in the South Island. That was pretty much only C. australis territory. These species, in particular, could be prepared in a slightly different manner from the one mentioned before, whereby they were covered in hot ashes, baked, pounded, and then the fibres separated. They were then put on a mat to be sprinkled with honey or nectar from the flowers of harakeke. The sweetened meal was then shaken out and placed in bowls for eating. It's at this point that Best mentions the no sex when steaming rule, something we again mentioned in reference to Kodu way back. So I'm led to believe this is all somewhat related. Of the other species, C. banksii leaves were eaten when the plant was quite young, and C. indivisia also had the upper part of the trunk eaten as well. According to Best, the tea that Māori preferred to eat, in order from best to worst, were C. terminalis, T. putter, C. pumilio, C. australis, C. indivisia, and C. banksii. The other way tea was used was to attract birds. When they were planted near settlements, that would encourage birds to come and nest in them, who would make a good, easy-to-access source of meat. Other plants that Māori were foraging were things like karaka berries that we have mentioned a few times every now and again. These would be planted around villages and even within them as a form of shade, but it also meant they had a ready access to the berries, some areas cooking quite a lot of them. For this reason, karaka wasn't really seen too much outside the kaina, at least as far as Māori foraging was concerned. The fact that they were planted within settlements, probably within the reach of children, is pretty interesting. Because if you recall, karaka berries are actually poisonous, and more recently, it has gotten a school here in New Zealand in trouble for having them grow on the borders of their property. So I'm guessing there was much education to the tamariki, children, on why you shouldn't eat the berries growing on the trees near the whare. Best explains that Māori told him that the karaka plant was introduced and brought with them from Polynesia to Aotearoa. This seems to be a bit muddy, as karaka is native to New Zealand and some of its outlying islands, or is just native to Northland and introduced south as Māori migrated in that direction. It depends on who you ask. It's also possible that it was introduced from the Kermadec Islands as well, so Maybe that's where the story comes from. I should also note that the reason I say it is native rather than endemic to New Zealand, meaning it's not found anywhere else in the world, is that karaka is naturalised and considered an invasive species in Hawaii. What's a bit funny about this particular section of Best's articles 
is that he says Caraca was introduced via, quote, deep sea vessels, end quote. Which makes me think of submarines, but I'm fairly certain Polynesia didn't have those yet. Either way, he does list off the Aotea, Nukutere, Matahorua, Takatimu, and Tainui, which are all waka from the Great Fleet. So we can be rest assured he was talking about large Polynesian canoes, and not hard metal rods full of seamen. HA! Anyway, moving on. As I hope you know by now, Karaka had a pretty involved process to make it edible and remove the poison. This would be done by steeping the berries in water, removing the pulp, and then steaming the kernels for quite some time. This was a pretty good idea, as the poison can cause muscle spasms, lock the muscles in contorted positions, violent convulsions, or even death. The reason this method of preparation worked is because the poison, or at least the important part of the poison, is destroyed when heated to about 100 degrees Celsius. So although Māori weren't explicitly aware of that fact, they did understand it in a different way, and had worked out the important bit. Heat it up real hot, and it's safe to eat. This is something you find all across the world in various cultures, particularly in terms of medicine and germ theory. For example, in medieval Europe, honey was sometimes rubbed on wounds or ingested in other things to cure various ailments or prevent infection. People didn't know explicitly why this worked, they just knew that it did, so they kept doing it. We would later learn, after germ theory was established, that the disease these people were trying to prevent was caused by microscopic bacteria, and that honey has antibacterial properties. Overall, it's really hard to know what foods Māori were foraging prior to European arrival. Foraged foods don't tend to leave much archaeological evidence in the same way that cultivated foods do. You know, they have gardens which have fences, changes in the soil composition, and all that sort of stuff that makes them just a bit easier to track. Foraged foods, on the other hand, are just found out in the bush, picking them up when you see them, so they don't leave that same record, with Aruha being that mild exception. Next time, we move a bit more forward in time to after European arrival. We will see how the introduction of all those different crops and food from the other side of the globe had an impact on Māori horticulture and society in general. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaltearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haritu atu, wokitu mai. See you next time. <laughs>